I'm Andrea. And I'm Claudia. And we are the Judgy Crime Girls. We've been just chit-chatting for the past <laughs> hour in the studio. Yeah, we have. Just hanging out. We were talking about getting pictures taken again because mm-hmm. I look nothing like our pictures that we had taken. A year ago, right? It was our first anniversary? Yeah. Wow. It seems longer. How much we have changed. <laughs> Listen, I have no hair. It's really <laughs> super short. And we were talking about that and how I tried to dye my hair with coffee this week. And it does not work at all. No. And people think that having short hair like this is very low maintenance. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It's not. You mm-hmm. have to get it cut constantly. Yeah. But it's awesome in the summertime. You yeah. just kind of gel it over and go. I love that. If I had your face, I totally would cut my hair off too. Trying to keep up with the Belfords. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I have since become a feral housewife. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going? So this week, (laughs) this is so funny. This guy came to my door and he was selling soap out of his backpack. Oh. And I was like, oh, hello. You were like, oh, I got an adult to talk to. (laughs) Hi. He was like, no, no, no. The soap is non-toxic. And he took off the lid and licked the inside of the. And I said, don't you do that. Don't, don't do that. And he put it away. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And then he goes. Well, it's toxic now. (laughs) Contaminated. Don't worry, I didn't buy the soap. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I gave him like a tip to go get a meal. But (laughs) he said, you are so nice. You're like a holly berry dipped in vanilla sauce. (laughs) (laughs) That's a huge compliment. (laughs) It made me laugh because my hair is so short. There you go. That's where I'm at. Love it. If you're keeping up with the feral housewife, that's where we're at these days. Okay. (laughs) New series, new podcast coming soon. Speaking of series, we have a series coming up. You probably remember last year we had our National Parks Creep Us Out summer series. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. That we wanted to do something like that again. Yeah. And so we came up with the idea starting in July, we're going to do Criminal Currents. Yeah. And bring you guys some fishy murders. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, so we're really excited to bring you this year's summer series. And I'm telling you, the first one is amazing. Don't miss next week. We already recorded it. That's why why I know (laughs) it's really, really good. When I search or research cases, I am all over the place for days. We really do work hard. I get it. Sunday, it's crunch time (laughs) for me. I'm like, oh my gosh. And Alex, eight hours later, he's like, are you still working on that? I'm like, shh, don't talk to me. Bring me a snack. (laughs) Facts and snacks. During our criminal currents, we're not going to be snacking. Right. Okay, we're going to be swimming. We ain't got time for snacks. (laughs) We don't. But for facts, Claudia just informed me that it takes approximately 262 treats to kill you on average, unless if you're diabetic. I am willing to see. Let's test this limit. How close can I come to death? This is like my daily consumption, at least very close to it. And that's probably why I feel like shit every day. Our case today takes place in a candy shop. (gasps) More candy. Give us the candy. (laughs) I want candy. Mm, 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 mm. 
I'll take, take you to, to the, the candy, candy shop. shop. Yeah. <laughs> so we are going to London. Oh, yay. Ah, I'm so excited. We are going to Ormskirk, and it, it is a market town. It's a suburb of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And for 700 years, they packed their marketplace. 10,500 people would come in the 50s. Wow. It's just the cutest cobblestone streets, mm-hmm. and it just looks so pretty. Ormskirk became known for its gingerbread over the years. Oh, really? Because local women would bake it, and then they would sell it to travelers. Gingerbread kind of became their thing. Ormskirk was the home to sisters Margaret and Mary Ormesher, and they were born at the end of the 19th century to Edward and Emma. Edward, he had run the John Bull Bar on Chapel Street, which was described as the worst in town before losing its license. Oh my gosh, like a dive-in. Or like in Germany, we like to call it Spielunke. <laughs> Wow, okay. Yeah. And then he went on to own what they called the Brickmaker's Arms on Asmal Lane. And it was a 10-room house or building with a storefront saloon and a courtyard. So we've we've gone on to purchase another bar. All right. Eventually, this bar also closes down and loses its life. Okay. He aimed high. He sure did. <laughs> He stuck with it. He did. He didn't change a thing. Emma, much like many of the other women of her time, she stayed at home and cared for children. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> After the saloon had closed down, what was next for the family but to move in? So can you imagine moving your family into a bar? No. No. So they oh, tried wait. To- <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> You're like, okay, kids, have a seat at the bar. They ended up converting that into their new home. It was in that same property that many years later, Margaret and Mary would be found murdered. They had lived a great life. As older women, they were unmarried, less than five feet tall, and they liked to run the show. (laughs) Yeah. It was just the two of them. They never had any kids. But they were really sweet. They decided to run a candy store together named Polly's on Church Street in their later years, which was Mary's nickname. Oh, Polly. I love Polly. I love that name. And I don't know why that was her nickname, but it was Mary Polly. Yeah, You're like, whatever. I can do whatever I want. Right. And that day and age, not getting married, not having kids, she probably did have that attitude. Probably. Not only did they sell all of this old-fashioned candy out of jars, the sisters also sold tobacco. So you could get your fix either way. Okay. You're like, hey, kids. Cigarettes. Smokes. Tootsie Rolls. What is it? They fit the little old lady stereotype almost perfectly. They were so gentle and kind. Mary took on the role of running the shop and was the face that most people would come across behind the counter. Her sister stayed at home and did all the housework, and she was well known for her cakes and pastries. Oh my gosh, so cute. That is adorable. Now, Mary had been warned almost six years before she was murdered to put her money in a bank or have someone walk her home. She's like, fine, 
I will just have someone walk me home. And Josephine Whitehouse lived above the candy shop. And for six years... (gasps) Without ever missing a day, she would walk Mary home every single night. Oh, she would walk Mary up to the front door, which was bolted from the inside. It was opened by Margaret because Mary did not have a front door key. The sisters always kept the back door locked, but Mary told Josephine that Margaret had a bad habit of opening the back door if she heard a sound. The sisters sometimes went to bed as late as 1 a.m. They sound like a hoot. They just have a good time. Oh, my kind of girls. Yeah. But on the night of Saturday, May 5th, 1956, Josephine could not walk with Mary because she was out of town with her husband. And Mary walked 15 minutes home from the shop alone. She carried a brown case, which held their week's earnings of $150 at that time. So today would be around $3,500. That's a that was a lot of money back then. Mary arrived home between 10.10 p.m. and 10.25 p.m. Sunset was at 8.49. So her walk really was just by the gas street lamps, which were not super bright. She was witnessed by a neighbor carrying the case in her right hand and an unidentified object in her left hand. There were no reports of her being followed home. And at around 11.15 and 11.30, several neighbors said that they heard groaning noises, male and female voices, breaking glass, and lids clattering, all from the sister's home. But everyone just went back to bed. Now remember, they are living in the Brickmaker's arms when they grew up. They changed the name of their home to Ivy Dean. There were 10 rooms. So the fact that this huge struggle went on and two people were murdered, all these people heard it, but no one came to check it out. So everyone went back to bed and Margaret, who was 69, and Mary, 67, were violently bludgeoned to death that night in their home. Some people at the back of the building heard shouting, but they thought that the sisters were just having a fight. Yeah, but not that late at night. They had never really fought before, so it was just not normal. At 10.30 in the morning, Josephine wanted to see her friend and tell her about her trip Mm. that they took, so she went to the shop to bring her a cup of tea and found it odd that it was locked. An hour later, she still didn't know what was happening and got help from a neighbor, Tom Cummings, who went to their house and noticed two bottles of milk on their doorstep and that the sister's yard was not in order. With no response at the front door, he pushed open the back door and saw Mary laying in a pool of blood just inside. So the back door was open. Or maybe they let someone in. Mm. Either way, blood was splattered on the walls, the trash can was on its side, and pieces of glass covered the floor. Next to their bodies, a large brass kitchen poker that was now bent, two brass candlesticks, and a shattered wine glass at the scene, and all signs of a very violent struggle. They also found their dog, Trixie, inside cowering under the table and it was said that if Trixie could have talked she would have said who the murderer was Mm. poor baby Mm. Eileen Morris was a district nurse who lived in the town at the time 
and she remembers the morning well because every Sunday, her husband, Derek Woods, who was a journalist, went to Polly's religiously every Mm -hmm. Sunday. And he went to the store not knowing came back empty-handed so irritated he's telling her guess what polly's not open i have no razor blades you don't have candy i have no cigarettes and he's stressed and then about an hour the phone rings and it was someone telling him about the murder because he was a journalist the sisters never would have harmed anyone and in those days when you took a baby out you could leave it outside of the mm-hmm. shop but you can't now you have to take them with you and Mary she would always come around the counter to have a look at the baby she was just such a nice woman it wouldn't have taken much to knock out these two women so i just don't know why someone was so vicious mm-hmm. in their attack yeah i mean there were barely 5 feet tall there were know, little Little, little, tiny little ladies. I know. And pushing 70. Well, they fought hard, I will tell you that. Robbery was thought to be the motive behind the attack because the money from the shop was taken home by the ladies and stored there. Mm-hmm. Her case that she had brought home with her containing the money was open on the kitchen table, but only one of the cash bags were taken. Why not take both of them? That's weird. Right. The remaining bag contained $50 in silver, and they decided around $100 was missing. Why not just take the case? Right. Local rumors were that the sisters kept a fortune in a grandfather clock in the kitchen, but police searched the house and found nothing significant that showed that these women were sitting on a ton of Mm -hmm. money. Now, they did give out some small loans to friends, but nothing major. There was no evidence that the house had been ransacked. And this was super interesting. The police had been made aware of a plot to rob the sisters 18 months before the murder, (gasps) but told them to be careful. Oh, somebody's planning to rob you, so be careful. The investigation began with Chief Cecil Lindsay, who had a spotless record of solving every murder and suspicious death case he had ever worked on previously. This murder was huge. America picked up the story, and local newspapers in Ormskirk put out a reward for any information leading to the capture. And just like any small town, rumors spread like wildfire. And Cecil was... Probably a little annoyed because he said that everyone talked like they all claimed they knew who went was, but they really didn't. When anything big happens, the locals always think they know. Yeah. And no one knows. Right. The only real clue police had to go on was from an 11-year-old boy who lived opposite of Ivy Dean. Barry Houghton had seen a man leaning against a blue bicycle for three nights in a row. (gasps) The 11-year-old said, I remember him so clearly. He seemed to be glancing up and down the road all the time. He said he saw him Wednesday night at around 10 p.m. for about a half an hour, again on Thursday and Friday night, but then he wasn't there on Saturday, which was when the murder happened. So he was casing the place. Mm -hmm. Barry told police that the man looked to be in his 30s, was about six feet tall, and was wearing a trench coat with dark pants. Now, if you are looking to not be suspicious, don't do that. (laughs) Don't wear a trench coat. Don't go around town on your bicycle with your trench coat. (laughs) Don't look like Columbo. (laughs) 
So this 11-year-old boy made front pages of all the newspapers. Within days, more than 300 posters were up around town trying to get more information. The scene was dusted to look for prints. There was one bloody fingerprint that was found at the home. Mass fingerprinting began of all the men in the town that were 18 and up to no avail. Oh, my god! They gosh. just could not find this guy. It was like a ghost. Yeah, maybe he rode his bike from one village over. House-to-house searches were conducted, and detectives scoured the local area for clues. They began to focus on another cousin of the sisters because he was in town during the murder. And on the day of their funeral, it was in the local newspaper that they were looking for a man named Norman Light. And they thought it was Norman because they thought it was someone that the girls would let in the back door Mm -hmm. and trusted because they didn't really have a ton of visitors at their home, especially that late. But Norman was ruled out as a suspect and they continued on. Now Cecil's team kept searching, but their investigation was failing to bring anyone justice. Their only other lead was what they thought was a blood sample from a path near the home. But when it tested, it turned out to be mud. And back then, testing took forever. The first time DNA was used to successfully convict someone in the UK was in 1986, and that was 30 years later. Ultimately, they were unable to find the killer, and the investigation went cold. It was reopened in the early 1980s when a phone call to the Manchester paper named the killer. (gasps) The elderly man on the end of the line expressed his regret at not initially confessing what he knew. And it was passed on to Lancashire police to look at again. But nothing ever came of the tip-off. The single fingerprint found at the scene wasn't enough to find the killer then, and it wasn't enough to bring about a conviction almost three decades later. The murder of Margaret and Mary Ormesher remains to be the only murder Cecil could not solve. And that had to just kill him. Uh, I can only imagine. But wait, who, who did the old man say it was? He didn't. Yeah, he did not. So they were keeping that hush. Ah. Uh. We may never know who took the lives of Mary and Margaret in 1956. But no unsolved murder or serious sexual assault case is ever closed by the police there. They remain committed to delivering closure and support for victims and their families. I didn't know that. Huh. That they never closed those. As it should be. Yeah. Wow. I really, really, really would like to know what made the old man think. Like, what did the guy do that he called him in? Oh, I'm sure guilt was just eating at him. Right. But what did he know? Like... He gave them a name. Yeah, but how? That's what I like to know. Yeah. Or how he knew who did it. Yeah. Oh, boo. The sisters were buried six days after they passed in a large turnout lined Church Street on a rainy Friday afternoon. The other roads were closed off as the two hearses made their way to their final resting place, which is just a short drive from their candy shop. Mm. And they have one headstone together, and it's in 
this beautiful church courtyard. They're kind of known for this church with a steeple. It's a painful memory for everyone in the town. Although much older, their killer may still be walking free and alive today. Wow. Okay. There were other high-profile murders that happened there. So that town kind of has a a bloody past. Those two sweet elderly women. I don't... Yeah, this picture I have of her, it's got her dog in it. Their dog, Trixie. Oh, she was like a cocker spaniel? Adorable. I'm not sure. Anyway, that is the candy shop murders. Wow, thank you. Yeah. All right, sorry, I gotta go. I'm off to solve Mary and Margaret's murder. Oh, hear you there. Oh, well, for me, I feel like, especially during that time, it probably was somebody they knew or were familiar with in some way, whether it was somebody from the candy shop that would always come. Because for two single ladies that age, Mm -hmm. maybe to open the door after 11 o'clock is kind of unusual. Do you want to know what I think? Yes. Okay. There is no way that for six years, you've got somebody walking with you, nothing happens Mm -hmm. to you. And on the very first day that someone is not with you, that's when something happens to you. That was planned. Yeah. And the cops knew it was going to happen. I think that Josephine went away with her husband, John. Mm Mm-hmm for the night. Now, obviously, Josephine cares. She loves her friend. I think that John played a role in this. He's like, no, let's let's leave town. Like he hired someone? Yes. I think John hired someone to watch her house for those three days. Take a look around. Whether Josephine knew or not, you know, it's kind of like, did uh-huh. she show up with tea because she knew? I don't know. Because... There is just no way that that was random. There is right. no way. Yeah. Well, did do we know if Joe and Josephine had money trouble? His name was John. Oh, John. But I said Joe. I'm it's okay. sorry. Joe no, no, and no. Josephine. No, it's okay. It's a lot of J's. John. It's a lot of J's. I don't think that they had money trouble, but also they were going to Southport is where they were going. If they're going, you know, away, they must have some money to leave town. Right. But just weird that he would only take $100 and not the other bag of 50. Or maybe maybe there was money in the grandfather clock and they knew it and they took that. Well, everybody in town knew about the money in the grandfather's clock. It's just too much of a coincidence. I think John had to be involved. It had to be set up. Even the police knew that there was going to be a setup. It had to be the one person that walked her home. Yeah. That wasn't there had to somehow be involved. Or, no, I'm, I'm probably way off, but maybe it was even Josephine. Maybe she wanted to run away with somebody and she didn't have the money, but she knew the sisters had money. The sisters did have money. I mean, they, they made good for themselves. Yeah, $150 a week back then, that was a lot of money, which is what, now you said 3000 500 yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of money a week. It is. And it wasn't a secret if it's a small town. Well, but you know how small towns work. And I don't know what you call it here. But back home when we were younger, we would whisper like 
something true into your friend's ear and then she would tell the person next to them and then by the time we get down you know eight or nine or ten people it was something completely different did you guys ever play that game yeah it's called the telephone game okay yes uh so we call it stille post which is kind of like quiet male something <laughs> like roughly translated you of all people know how small towns work you're a small town girly yourself yeah and so i kind of chuckled to myself when the the lead detective was like man everybody thinks they know everything nobody knows anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> like exactly yeah it is interesting like you said for six years, everything was fine. And all of a sudden, that one night, she didn't get walked home. Yeah. And I would really be interested to know if bringing tea at 10 a.m. was a regular thing or what? Well, I don't like to stereotype people, but I think in England, it's probably pretty common. When we're old ladies, we need to live by each other and bring each other tea and check on each other, yeah. okay? It'll be probably decaf coffee by then. Although I do love tea, but only in the winter time. Wow, very very interesting. You got you got me thinking. <laughs> I really enjoyed this one and hopefully you guys did too. It was so funny. I was driving here and all I could see were those silly gingerbread men I mean, like photobombing all these pictures, but they they do. They have the festivals and stuff like that. And they still have the the market. Wow. It's insane. Wow. Yeah, I'm trying to go overseas a little more. I trying, love it. Trying to get on international cases. Look at you spreading your wings. I'm so proud. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you liked this case, if you want to support us, support the show, you can run over to our website, judgycrimegirls.com, and you can either A, send me a little note of encouragement, <laughs> or B, you can buy me a coffee to help me stay awake at night. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, I'm really super excited. We are going to start a subscription where you can get even more Judgy Crime Girls content every single month for $5, you will get the good stuff. Our episodes are fun. I love doing them. We're bringing that deep dive content specifically to our supporters within our subscription page. So we can't wait to launch that. That'll be coming soon. Glad to be here. So thank you for listening. Have a great week. Stay sassy, stay judgy, and stay tuned in with the Judgy Crime Girls every Wednesday. Okay, love, love you. Bye. bye.